Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and 7th, a production of Forum Communications. I'm James Walner. This podcast contains content that some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. Misty Jones, age 16, arrived at the police department with her mother at 3 p.m. on Friday, September 18, 1998. In the police interview video, Misty dons white slacks, brown sandals, a blue and white striped shirt. Her brunette hair is straight and long. Walking into the station that day, Misty Jones has no idea that Ryan Werner finally caved in and told police that she had driven Robert and Brian to the Erickshead home when the killings took place. She has no idea that her friend Candy revealed that Misty had helped dump the bodies. In Misty's world, a world where you never ever narc or tell on a friend, she would have been devastated to have known these things. Detective Steve Lundin knew all of the above. He also knew that the clock was ticking. They only had about four hours of daylight left before the bodies of Barbara and Gordon Erickstead would be exposed to yet another night beneath the stars. But he also knew that rushing an interview is the best recipe for failure. This is former Bismarck police detective Lloyd Halverson again. If you want to get to the truth... You have to be really patient. And you have to take the conversation where it goes. If you become argumentative with the person that you're wanting to get information from, they will become argumentative with you. Do you know who you talk to? Misty plops into a chair next to her mother. Misty is wiry and agile. She can pull both her feet up right into the chair as if squatting in it. She looks like she can wiggle her way out of any tight spot. Now and then she lets one leg extend to the floor and watches it fidget on its own, like a little wayward thought she just can't quite contain. At one point, Detective Lundin tells her that they have two missing people on their hands. When she hears the words, two missing people, Misty's immediate thought, her go-to concern, is not for the victims, but for her two friends who killed them. When she voices this concern, Detective Lundin is taken back, but he quickly recovers and says, No, two other people besides them are missing. Misty does gladly tell the detective that the last time she had seen Robert and Brian was when she dropped them off that night at Brian's parents' house. This was late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning. She says she just dropped them off and then she left. She says Brian was going to borrow his father's pickup and he just needed a ride. A bunch of people had been at Pam's house at Sweet Avenue that Wednesday night, she says. Detective Lundin asks her about the route that night, before they arrived at the Erickstead home. Misty says they first went looking for her boyfriend, Rick Storhog. 
Rick is 17 years old and one of Brian's best friends. Rick had been at the house on East Sweet Avenue on Wednesday night, too, but he left earlier to drive someone home. Rick said he'd be coming right back, but he never did return. So, Misty, Robert, and Brian drove to Rick's house. They found Rick's car sitting outside of his parents' home and figured Rick had gone to bed, so they left. Misty tells Detective Lundeen that she dropped Robert and Brian off at Brian's parents' and then she drove back to the house on East Sweet Avenue and went to bed. End of story. I thought Steve Lundeen, uh, Detective Lundeen, did great with Misty, getting her to a place where she finally told the truth. He knew she was stalling. He knew she had the information. But he didn't push her. He played on her heartstrings a little bit. He talked about her loyalties a little bit. And ultimately, he got her to give it up. But it took a long time. And that was patience. If you back her into a corner, she'll come out swinging. Uh, he didn't do that. Um, and that was key. Kind of some serious business. That's why you're here. You know, we would call you from New Salem if it wasn't. Yeah. And I'm just, I just want to make sure that I get everything from you, okay? Misty sits cross-legged in her chair, her mother in a chair next to her. Okay. Like I said, I'm not concerned with charging you with anything. I'm not concerned with getting you in trouble right now. But we got two people right now that are missing. And we've got... Two people besides them. Okay. And... I know you were at the house with them on Wednesday night. Misty's mother looks over at her daughter, confused. It's obvious her mother has no idea about any of this or where this conversation is headed. They got information from you, okay? They heard it from somebody else that you had told, okay? Told me exactly what happened at this house, okay? And your name was the one that they gave us, you know, we heard the story from her because she's the one that dropped him off at the house and she saw what happened. Didn't see everything, but was at the house and knew what happened. Misty reacts. She turns her head away from her mother and hides part of her face behind her clasped hands. Her mother is confused. Where is this going? What is this detective even getting at? I need you to tell me what you saw at the house. Because the details that, that I got this other person that received the information from you are details that only somebody that was at that house at that time would know, okay? And I don't know why anybody would say your name if it wasn't. I mean, I know, like I said... Misty leans back in her chair now. Mother and daughter exchange glances. Misty looks right suddenly now, scared. The person that might have the information that we're looking for, okay? At which house? At Brian's? At Brian's. Misty reiterates that she just dropped them off and then she left after five minutes. I just had dropped them off. I was there for like five minutes. And you don't have to worry about getting Brian and Robert in trouble, okay, because that's, they, that's already been done. We've already filed charges against Robert and Brian, okay. But we need to find out what happened at that house. We need, I need to know... Misty's mother wants more clarification. Where is this going? In other words, when they run the car, but they think that this, do you hear them say anything? 
Is that what you're getting at? Well, the information I have is that, number one, you were told everything that happened in that house. And number two, you even looked in the house. Okay? And saw what the aftermath of what happened. Okay? And it's not too late. You don't have to worry that I'm going to get you in trouble. Can I leave now? Misty then jumps up and leaves the room crying with her mother and the detective in pursuit. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Misty's mother and the detective managed to get Misty back into the interview room. Misty now realizes that someone in her circle has narked on her. She can't believe it. She tells her mom at one point she's going to interrogate every last one of them. She won't narc, though. Misty tells her mother and the detective that she will never testify in court against Robert and Brian. It might not get to that point. No, but if it does, I will not testify against them. I will not tell anybody. No, no, no. And even now, she doesn't disclose everything. Misty doesn't yet realize that Candy has told the police that Misty helped dump the bodies. Detective Londine has two objectives now. Really, the most important at the moment is to find out where the bodies are. But he also needs to know what happened in that house. What did Misty see? What did Misty do? You need to talk to me about it, okay? I understand the two of them did a very bad thing, but you're not getting them any trouble because they've already gotten in as much trouble as they're going to get into. Nothing you can tell me is going to make anything worse on those two. Yeah, but it's fact that I narked them out. You're not narking them out. They already know, honey. Okay? You're not narking them out, and I'm not going to tell them that I even talked to you. It could have been one of a million people that told us about it. One of 11 people? Well, 11 is sure a heck of a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And if, if those 11 each tell one person that tells another person that tells another person, You're talking about the entire school of BHS talking about it. All of the people that come and go out in Amy's house, which is probably half the city of Bismarck, it sounds like. She's got a lot of people that come in and out of there. Yeah. Well, that's good. But they all know. Misty finally just says it. Robert and Brian killed Brian's parents. On top of that, Misty explains that she was witness to some of it. She was in the garage smoking a cigarette. The guys went inside, and she heard yelling. Someone yelled, what the fuck? And the guys came back into the garage. I left the garage, and I heard, what the fuck? Ah! I thought you fucking died. And then they came back down there, and I had to put it in the I just started, started. 
Detective Londine asks Misty if she went into the house herself. She nods. Yes, she did. Then he asks her if the Ericsteads were still alive. Were you in the garage when it happened? Did you go into the house? Were his parents already dead as far as you know when they were in, when you were in the house? They weren't? No, still alive. Was she breathing or? Yeah. Was she trying to talk or move or anything? Was she unconscious? Misty tells them that after Robert and Brian came back in the garage, she went inside the house. Robert and Brian followed her back in. She saw Brian's father laying on the floor. She saw Brian's mother. She was still alive. She said to them, Your mom's still alive. Brian and Robert started kicking Mrs. Erickstead in the head, and then Brian cut her throat again. And she ultimately described where they dumped the bodies, about 50 miles south of Mandan, uh, in a tree row near Selfridge. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, Season 3, The House on Sweet and 7th. If you would like to watch portions of some of these police videos, support Dakota Spotlight at inforum.com. Bonus videos, documents, photos, and more will be available from members on inforum.com slash dakota-spotlight. The town of Selfridge lies in Sioux County on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. It's about 60 miles south of Mandan along Highway 6. The landscape is mostly flat with occasional low buttes and sporadic clusters of trees. It's actually a beautiful area, but for some, it's an area that will always bring back somber memories. There's a, um, a lot of things about this job that a person doesn't want to relive, that they don't want to take with them that they would just as soon forget or be able to put behind them. This was, this was one of them. Um, what happened to uh, Barbara and Gordon Erickson was brutal beyond imagination, was uh, violent in uh, some of the worst ways. And then to be so callously discarded and the reasons, no reason here. There was, there was no justification. And uh, when you called and said, we'd like to interview you about this, you know, I had put this case behind me 21 years ago. Um, I wasn't even sure I wanted to, to open it back up. And I think when you sent me the police reports and you sent me interviews, uh, videos, and things like that, I think it took me over two weeks to open the first document and to view the first video. My lieutenant contacts me and he says, he was sending somebody over and he wants me 
to jump in the car with this guy, and we're to head down to Selfridge because the information that we got that the Barbara and Gordon had been killed and her bodies had been dumped in a tree road down by Selfridge, North Dakota. Um, I remember uh, my lieutenant telling me, get ready to go down to Selfridge, get a hold of Detective Becker, get those people back here, tell the chopper to refuel, get a hold of the coroner, get a hold of the sheriff of Sioux County, and tell him we're coming. And, uh, and that, was a, that was a big assignment. So I, I remember I, I wrote up a, a quick little script for our office manager, D. Trimble, and I said, well, you call the sheriff of Sioux County and tell them that about a dozen units from the Bismarck Police Department, um, an equipment truck, generators, and a helicopter are on their way south of Mandan to try to find a couple of bodies that were dumped there. Um, tell them we're investigating a double homicide that happened in the last couple of days. And so she started in on this with the sheriff, and he, and he hung up on her. He thought it was a joke. He thought it was a prank call. And uh, so she said, he doesn't believe me. I told her, I said, well, have him paged by state radio and have him call me direct. So he did. And I relayed the message, and he was very apologetic. And uh, he's like, I, I thought it was a prank call. And uh, ultimately, the sheriff was extremely helpful. We got down there about the time that the sun was going down. And uh, we drove over to the to where everybody was at. They'd set up um, tripods with the lights on it, and 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 there in in the tree row was uh, Mr. Ericstead laying on his back, and and Mrs. Ericstead was laid down with her head on his stomach, and her legs were bent underneath her. This is a crime scene that uh, I've relived many, many times. It's, uh, it's something that a lot of officers, a lot of detectives won't ever witness. Um, I was assigned as the photographer, um, and it was photographs that uh, I can still see to this day, um, things I would wish nobody to have to see. I don't want to sound crass and, and you know, like unemotional, but we get, I guess, from what we do, we kind of get conditioned to some of that stuff. And yeah, it's, it's terrible and it sets you back. For, but in the same regard, you know, looking at them and looking what has been done to them, you, you want to get them some justice. You want to get the family some justice too. So you have to put your emotions aside and then get on with things. You know, if, if you can't do it and help in the, the crime scene, then basically you tell, I, I can't do it. And you step aside because you don't want to mess, you don't want to mess something of this stature up. You know, you don't want to give these guys a free walk on, on anything. So everything is meticulous and it's, it's choreographed kind of. And you're looking for 
things that's going to tie it in from this scene to the scene that we were just at. And so, you know, you're, you try not to focus on what had happened to them. And, you know, you know these are human beings and this shouldn't happen to them. But in the same respect, you you got to push on because if you don't, you're worthless. You, can, yeah, you can't do it. Yeah, you can't do it anymore and you might as well just get out of it. I took a lot of pictures. I helped uh, secure Barbara and Gordon um, for transport uh, back to Bismarck. I remember trying to figure out which corner was going to have jurisdiction. Um, we had our coroners up in Bismarck, Dr. Tello, and we had our coroner of Sioux County, who was also the sheriff. Um, the coroners up in Bismarck said, well, you found those bodies in Sioux County. Sounds like a problem for the Sioux County coroner. And the Sioux, Sioux County coroner, who was the sheriff, was saying, well, you know darn well they were killed up in Bismarck. Sounds like a Bismarck coroner. And uh, th thankfully, Dr. Mizell, the uh, chief medical examiner for the state of North Dakota, who basically is the, the coroner by default. Um, and uh, he was uh, very agreeable, and he helped us out immensely in uh, serving that role. And ultimately we were able to transport the bodies back to Bismarck. We gotta get some sleep because the next day, even though it's a Saturday, we're gonna be at it at six o'clock in the morning again, trying to run down leads, trying to, we're talking to witnesses, we're going through uh, the crime scene again, we're tabulating things, we're putting stuff into evidence, and you know, it's just an, it's an ongoing process, and now that we have located Mr. and Mrs. Erickstead. We know that there's going to be an autopsy. We know that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, people are given assignments at that time, and everybody has their marching orders, so to speak. So, you know, and everybody's pretty tired, so we just go on home. While law enforcement were in Selfridge that night, the cities of Bismarck and Mandan had carried on pretty much like normal. The news of the murders traveled first via local television and then spread quickly around town in bars, restaurants, and perhaps to the grandstands at Bismarck High's homecoming football game. Somewhere in town, a woman named Linda Gleach was watching the news. 18-year-old Brian J. Erickstad and 27-year-old Robert R. Lawrence. And when she saw a photo of one of the suspects, Robert Lawrence, she recognized him. She felt that she had met this man very recently, at work maybe, at the Med Center One emergency room. murders happened sometime after 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening, but were not discovered until around 10 o'clock this morning. So far, the investigation has centered around the victim's home at 245 Laredo Drive in Bismarck. Burke says at this point, all the evidence leads to Erickstead and Lawrence. The information that has been gathered by a very diligent and excellent uh, investigation by the Bismarck Police Department to this point uh, has led to the conclusion that these two individuals are involved in this. We have some significant evidence to that. 
Ericstad and Lawrence are also charged with two counts of vehicle theft. One of the stolen vehicles was found in Cass County earlier today, but the whereabouts of the two men are still unknown. An all-points bulletin has been issued, and Burke says the two men should be considered armed and dangerous. If anybody sees these individuals, I would strongly caution them to call local law enforcement not to try anything or to approach these individuals because if they have killed once, I doubt if they would hesitate a second time. At around 10 p.m. Friday evening, an anonymous phone call came in to the police department. A woman told Detective Gary Malo that she had just been at A&B Pizza. While there, she overheard two adults and one teenager talking about the murders. She heard the teenage girl tell the adults that the police would be looking for her and she needed to hang low. Officer Jeff Azur drove immediately to A&B, found the three individuals still there, and had them follow him back to the police department. The teenager was a girl named Courtney. She was friends with Amy Werner and several others associated with the East Suite Avenue residents. The two adults didn't know anything about this at all. Courtney was their babysitter. Like so many other teenagers in Bismarck that day, Courtney had quite a bit of information. She told Detective Malo that the previous day, after school, she had been driving around with their friend, Allison, and they had run into Brian and Robert with their girlfriends, the Werner girls. Robert Lawrence was driving a silver or tan-colored four-wheel drive pickup truck and Brian Erickson was driving a blue Cadillac. They all met in the parking lot of Denny's Restaurant near A&B Pizza. Courtney told Detective Malo that while in Denny's parking lot, Allison got out of her car and approached the Cadillac, where she spoke with Amy Werner and Brian Erickson. Courtney heard her friend Allison pleading with Amy, saying, You can't leave me. When Allison returned to her car, she was crying. Courtney asked her what in the world was going on, and Allison just said, You don't want to know. One officer at the station that night was Officer Cody Trom. At 4.18 a.m., Trom looked up and observed a woman rushing into the police station. In Officer Trom's incident report, he would later describe the woman as being hysterical. The woman was Pam Werner from the house on East Suite Avenue, Amy, Ryan, and Michelle's mother. She was scared half to death. In fact, she was fearful for her own life. She told Cody Trom she had more information about the Erickstead murders, and she demanded to speak with a detective. But there was absolutely no shortage of drama. Um, Pam was convinced that she was to be murdered as well, that her boyfriend, uh, Weasel, was to be murdered as well. Um, she was trying to have one daughter committed. She was, um, she was a wreck. So Officer Trom called Detective Troy Shaner at home and let Pam Werner speak with him. Shaner had been asleep for less than two hours after a long day, first the grueling interview with Candy, and then the awful scene down near Selfridge. And so, Pam Werner told Detective Troy Shaner about her eventful Friday evening. It had been a long day for Pam Werner, after all. Her 17-year-old son, Ryan, had been interviewed by the police twice, and Ryan had fled from one of those interviews. 
Both of her daughter's boyfriends, Brian Erickson and Robert Lawrence, were now wanted for murder. The police had found bloody clothing in her house, possibly related to this crime. Pam had been to Bismarck High School, then the police station, then back to East Suite Avenue with the police, then back to the police station with her son Ryan, and finally down to the desert to look for two homicide victims. Pam told Detective Shaner that that evening, her and her boyfriend Weasel, and her daughter Amy, and her son Ryan, picked up their kid's friend Candy at Candy's house, and then they all went to Wendy's restaurant to eat. After that, they all met up with Candy's mother and Misty Jones and her mother at the bowling alley Capitol Lanes. Misty and her mother had just returned from the area near Selfridge when Misty had helped law enforcement locate the bodies. And there they sat, three mothers and their teenage kids, all of them, in one way or another, suddenly involved in a murder investigation. Pam said that while she was at the bowling alley, she got in an argument with her daughter, Amy. Amy had been talking about Mrs. Erickstead and the brutal injuries she had suffered. Amy had said something like, she hardly had a head left. Pam told Detective Shaner that she was shocked by this statement, and she said to her daughter, Oh my God, can you imagine me without a head? And Amy's response was, I already have. Pam told Detective Shaner that that comment was only the first thing that made her fearful for her own life that night. Pam said that after the bowling alley around midnight, she took her kids to the psychiatric ward. She was worried about how her kids were handling this situation. Ryan was just staring off into space, and Amy was very distraught. While in the waiting room, Pam overheard her daughters, Amy and Michelle, talking with Misty Jones and Candy. One of them said that it wasn't just Brian Erickstead's parents who were supposed to be killed, but Pam and Weasel, too. Pam told the detective that she wasn't sure who said it, but she thought it might have been her own daughter, Amy. Pam also said that she didn't think her son Ryan was being honest about the crime. She thought she overheard him saying that he had seen the bodies either in the house or in the back of the truck. Her daughters, Amy and Michelle, they still have their bags packed, she told him. They're waiting for Robert and Brian to come back and pick them up to run away with them. Amy still plans on marrying Brian, even if he's in prison. Finally, she said that she felt her kids knew about the planning of the murders for many days. They weren't in on it, she said, but they knew about it. That night, in the house on East Sweet Avenue, Pam and Weasel locked their bedroom door, fearing for their own lives. Pam snuck out at 4 a.m. and ran to the police department. I really, uh, I, I knew that these kids were conflicted. And that's what they were. They were kids. They had very little um, positive direction in their life. They had very little positive role models in their life. But they, they fully understood right from wrong. And you can tell that um, when you talk to them. You know, even Pam, I was at her house a lot. You know, I was assigned as a youth crimes investigator. And so this family was a big part of my job security. And um, she even would tell me what I needed to know. Now, she would spin the information just enough to make herself less culpable. But she would, she would ultimately tell me what I needed to know. I mean, I asked her, I'm looking for a couple of runaways. Are they here? Yep, downstairs. 
She would then say things, but you know, yesterday I called the police and I told them they were here and nobody showed up to come and get them. Now, I don't know if we ever looked into that or, or anything like that, but, but even Pam was one to talk. She was one to tell us what she'd been told. She never really thought that her children and their friends should necessarily be held accountable for what they did and what they knew, but she would usually come clean. Despite fearing for her own life, when Detective Shaner and Officer Trom suggested she go somewhere else for the night, Pam said she would just go home anyway. And so Pam returned to the place she apparently most wanted to be, dead or alive, the little house on the corner of Sweet and Seventh. Still to come on future episodes of Dakota Spotlight Season 3, The House on Sweet and Seventh. How could you classify it as maybe Charles Manson-esque? My stomach dropped. I was like, that could have been you. You don't know what could have happened there. Two people died. They died horrendous death. And yet these kids are idolizing the people that did it to them. We ended up over at that house on Sweet Avenue. Well, we were all partying. Everybody was having a good time. And then as the time went on, it was like... Why would she come out and, and say that? He murdered, brutally murdered, two innocent people. And it, it still to this day baffles me. Jumped out and started beating the crap out of this guy, and I just remember everybody screaming and hollering. And The TV news audio from 1998 was provided courtesy of the State Historical Society of North Dakota. The House on Sweet and Seventh is hosted and reported by me, James Wallner, and is a production of Forum Communications Company. Don't miss the accompanying mini-documentary, The House on Sweet and Seventh, which will be available on any North Dakota Forum Communications website. That's the Grand Forks Herald, the Jamestown Sun, the Dickinson Press, and Inforum.com. Again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.